in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE and the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 11. Joining me today is my marvelous co-host, Patrick Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? Excellent, Mark. We've got a great view today. Yep. And we also have a guest, Mr. Neil Campbell. How are you doing today, Neil? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> and Neil, you're the HSE director at Pacific Drilling. Correct. Yeah. What, if our audience doesn't know who Pacific Drilling is, what do y'all do? Uh, we're an offshore ultra deep water driller. Uh, we have seven ultra deep water drill ships, and uh, we drill in, as the name says, deep water. <laughs> so they're uh, 100 miles, 200 miles offshore, and uh, drilling into very tough formations. We're a drilling contractor. We own the ship. We provide the people. They provide the technology. So, um, you know, this is the HSE podcast, and we want to talk about uh, HSE. You have a ton of experience back around that. Let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you get into the industry? I graduated from university as uh, an electrical engineer so many years ago. I can't tell you how far that was, but um, I'm actually Canadian, and I graduated from university in Canada. And after sitting behind a desk for many years graduating from engineering, I decided I wanted the get away from a desk and uh, I got an offer from a company to go work in the woods uh, leading a small crew it actually was uh, a wireline crew for Schlumberger and uh, and that sounded very appealing to me so rather than going to work in a design uh, working for a company that would stick me behind a desk again I said okay I'm going so I headed to the north fields of uh, Alberta and worked for Schlumberger wireline for three years out in the bush. Yeah, those wireline guys <laughs> go through some stuff, don't they? Yeah, when I started, we were, it was uh, going flat out. So uh, sleep was one of those things, it was a luxury. You, you worked hard, you played hard when you were off work, but uh, sleep was uh, few and far between the episodes. Yeah, and then so from Schlumberger, where'd you go? I stayed at Schlumberger for uh, 31 years. Wow. And I left Schlumberger six and a half years ago to come over to Pacific Drilling. Uh, had a couple of friends over here that uh, convinced me that a new upstart like Pacific was a great place to come. They needed some expertise. Uh, when I came on board, I was uh, early in the game. We didn't have any operating ships. Uh, we were building ships in South Korea at the time. I uh, had four in construction. And we had nothing in place, no management system, standards, policies. We were working, getting it all put in place. So I spent the first year with my VP uh, developing our system and getting, getting the, the tools of the trade, if you want to call it that. How, wow. how was that starting up from nothing to what Pacific is today? Well, it, it's, um, you might think it's difficult. There was a lot of time spent doing it, but one of the beauties that I had was my VP had also come from Schlumberger 
And his boss, the CEO of the company, had also been with Schlumberger before that. And they knew how Big Blue worked and that you had to have a very disciplined management system. So one of the reasons I came over was they said, look, we're going to implement a system like Schlumberger has, a, a f true management system that we'll use to run the company. And uh, because I had been in that uh, field, the HSE field with Schlumberger for many years, it, it was, I mean, I could do that in my sleep. So it made it easy for me to come over here and help implement a management system. Yeah, it must have been nice to actually build it from scratch. That way you didn't have to try to fix something that was broken. You knew the right way to do it, and you did it the right way the first time. It, it was, and to know that you have uh, management support, that was important. Yeah, it's um, 31 years at Slumberjay, so you have seen HSE literally fundamentally change. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier um, before we turned the microphones on, but a lot of people outside of oil and gas have some misconceptions about what, what safety is. Um, and the bottom line is everybody in this industry, and I know it's a metric, I know it's a KBI, but everybody in this industry in their hearts wants their people to go home safe at night. That's true. It, I mean, you want it, and it's so much to the point that you don't want uh, even a first aid type injury where somebody gets a, a small bruise or a, a small cut that you can put a Band-Aid on, that's unacceptable. So yeah. we're not talking about missing limbs or poked out eyes or things it's even the small injuries are unacceptable yeah it's um it's one of the things i love about this industry um is that it's in it's in the culture it's ingrained in the culture now when i got in this industry 20 years ago it wasn't like that safety was something that was talked about but the frontline people on the street often were more worried about getting the job done than their safety metrics and i've watched this industry fundamentally change where the frontline people on the street for oil and gas companies in their hearts want to make sure there's zero incidents that's true but i i guess i can even though it's a long time ago, Mark, I think you were still a young boy at that time. <laughs> um, you know, 37, 38 years ago, even when I came to Schlumberger, uh, HSE was a big thing for Schlumberger. It always, it has been for decades. And, right. And I remember my indoctrination with the company that there were some cardinal rules that uh, you had to do these things. And if you didn't, you were kicking your lunch pail down the road. And... Things that back then, almost 40 years ago, your, the public didn't even really think about, like wearing seat belts in your car was an absolute must 40 years ago. Yeah, in right. some, well, you know, that was, that was foreign to a lot of people. Right. So, you know, when you, when you bring new kids out of university or you take some farm boy off of a tractor and put them in behind the wheel of a big truck and say, you know, this, your job here is conditional upon you wearing your seatbelt and driving safe and you're going like, geez I've never worn a seatbelt in my life okay well now you are so you said so, something interesting there getting, getting the guys the 19 year olds or the guys on off a tractor I think that's a lot easier than what Pacific had to do it's a very young company obviously you have a lot of guys that have been in the industry with some other offshore drilling contractors how was it for Pacific to start up a new system and really drive that culture with your employees who've got these bad habits, the other ways of doing things ingrained in them. How, how did Pacific transfer the, this is the way we're going to do business to the guys that have done things a little bit differently their entire career? Yeah. So I guess, Patrick, one of the things I'll admit, you're right. It, you're, you can't start up a high technology drilling company with a bunch of farm boys 
that have never done it before. We needed to use the expertise. So our, the guys that are on the coal face out there that are drilling the wells and running all the tools, making sure everything works, they're very experienced. And, and yes, we brought them from all of our competitors. That's where our force came from. And uh, one of the things that we used to entice them was uh, right off the bat when they came in, we would talk about our HSE management system and how it was going to work and some of the tools that we used. Uh, and a lot of the buzzwords they had heard before, but uh, they, they got to see it uh, as a new company. Um, they got to see that the things that they had heard all put into a, into a, a solid management system where it wasn't just a program here and a program there. It was actually there was some, some continuity from one, one program to another. One thing I wanted to ask, when you do have incidents, you talked about even the smallest first aid case is not acceptable offshore, which I think our audience would agree. How do you come back for, from having an incident, if, whether it's minor or something major? How do you get the crew's heads back on straight to, to focus on the job at hand, drive the safety culture after something happens? Well, one of the first things is you, you have to make sure that they understand what happened. So we need to investigate every incident to figure out what the root cause was. And then based on your causes, take the corrective actions appropriately, engage the people that were involved in the incident right through the process of the investigation and make sure that they understand the actions and they believe in the actions. Then following up on those actions to make sure that they have been implemented. I think one of the things that helps change the culture a little bit is the stop work program, you know, before you actually have an incident. Preventing the incident by giving the guys the right tools to stop a job or to stop a situation that they question. Something that doesn't look right or they aren't understanding fully and giving them the right tools and the support from management to actually stop that job, I think makes a big difference. Companies have been talking about stop work for decades now, and in some companies that's all it is, is yep. talk. It's not, there's no uh, teeth to it. And, uh, and I think that we have developed the culture um, where the guys really believe that when they are questioning something and they put up their T sign or whatever it is uh, that they want to stop a job, then somebody's going to be listening to them. Yeah, that culture has changed because you're right. People used to talk about stopping the job, but if you were that guy that stopped the job and it wasn't a valid reason, a lot of times you were gone, right? Yeah. And now that it's changed where it's okay to stop the job, that people are more important than actually the job. Um, and it's nice to see that change. You, t you talked to something a little earlier, Neil, about um, – do an actual um, analysis when there's an incident. That's something that is um, is also in my world, uh, my view has become is relatively new, because it used to be that when you had an incident, somebody would try to figure out, point the finger at somebody, right? And that guy a lot of times was 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 gone. Now people want to go back and actually truly understand what happens, and nobody gets in trouble. You want to understand it so you can either tweak the system, change the process, and then educate. Yeah, you know, it, there is. It, it's not easy. Um, because as a company, you want to find out what happened and fix it. You want to dig in. You don't want to point the finger at somebody. You want to get all the facts, and you want to figure out 
what can we do as a company to fix what went wrong? And unfortunately, there's a bit of a downside to that because, and your, and your lawyers will tell you this, that if you as a company dig in and everything, you're trying to fix your system and figure out where you as a company did something wrong, you're taking a lot of ownership, that, which is a good thing, but you're saying it's, it's not your fault, Jimmy John or Billy Sue or whatever. It's our fault that this incident happened. And in our uh, lawsuit happy society today, when you, you do those things, the right things to take ownership of the problems and try and fix them, it's, it comes back and hits you in the face because somebody who has been hurt, their lawyer says, well, yeah, but you, Mr. Company Man, uh, you said it was your fault that my client got hurt. Uh, you're taking responsibility for my poor guy getting hurt. So it's tough because we know the right thing is. You don't want to blame the, the guy or the girl. You want to take the responsibility and fix it. But it's, it's still, you, you've got to have some accountability in the system. When we bring in a new employee, one of the first things we go over with them is the single-page HSE policy. Wait, we, i got to stop you, Neil. Did you say single-page HSE policy? Single-page. One page. Oh, my God. I've never seen that in my entire life in any company, <laughs> ever. Would you like me to read it word for word? No. <laughs> um, it, it's a single page, and it's, it, in very simple terms, it says, this is what we believe as a company. This is what we're going to give you, the employee, to do the job. But there is a catch. You have to agree to follow the rules and to abide by the policy. And the accountability comes in where when something does happen and we've uncovered all the facts, if somebody has failed to follow the rules for whatever reason, if they've taken it upon themselves to take a shortcut or you know, something that was out of the company's control and, then, and there's an incident has occurred, that individual will be held accountable. Because yeah, it wasn't a failure within the system. It was a failure of somebody to follow the rules of the system. So, we, yeah, we still have disciplinary action that we take because sometimes people will take no, no, shortcuts. It's, it's, it's human nature, right? Yeah. It, and, and what's unfortunate about it is often it's the guys that have done it for a long time. Yeah. Right? They get so used to it that they think they don't have to follow the checklist. Yeah, you know, complacency is always – that's a tough thing. And one of the things that we try and drive into people's heads is that the rules that you have to follow, if you're following them because the company says you have to follow these rules, that's all, that's all good when things are going right. But when your mind starts to wander and you're not focused on the task at hand, sometimes errors, human errors, creep into the, into the picture. And what we tell people is whatever you can do to make that rule a habit 24-7, it's going to stick with you. It's going to be in your brain. And I'll use an analogy, one that we used. I, I've used this a lot when I was at Schlumberger, and it goes back to the driving and seat belts. When you're learning to, to drive, uh, nowadays at least they make you put your seat belt on. It's a law. It's, it's the rule that you do it. But you have to make it a habit. And if you leave it up to the individual to do, say, a, a risk assessment of the journey that he's about to make, if if he's driving his car from the garage out to the street, a matter of 50, 60 feet, and you say, okay, well, what's the risk assessment say on that? Well, there's no risk. You can't, you're not going to get hurt. Okay, well, then I don't need to put my seatbelt on, right? I'm not going to get hurt. I'm just driving my car to the street. 
the problem with that is you break the habit of putting the seatbelt on. Gotcha. You say, even something, even if you jump in your car to move it 10 feet, you have to get in the habit of doing that all the time so it becomes ingrained in your brain. And, and then when you're not thinking about the trip at hand, you're not, you can't forget about putting it on because it's become such a habit. Well, the same goes on the rig with the use of the tools and the PPE and uh, a, a very common thing, uh, Patrick, you'd know from the rigs is climbing stairs and descending stairs. I mean, we've got thousands of stairs on a rig. And when you're going down the stairs, there's a right way to go down the stairs Absolutely. using the trailing hand technique. And, you know, when the guys are on shift 12 hours a day and we drive it into their heads, you, you use the, the trailing hand technique for descending stairs. And then they go home on their time off for three or four weeks and they choose to not use that technique, then that habit that they had maybe while they were working is gone again. So it, when you take the, those types of things and you teach people to take them into their personal space, uh, when they're shopping, when they're at their home, when they're in church or whatever it is, when you go down a flight of stairs, you practice the trailing hand technique it's just the same as driving and putting your seatbelt on. It'll always be there. So no matter what you're thinking about, you're going to be using the trailing hand technique. You don't have to think about it. It just comes natural. I get on Mark quite frequently about the trailing hand technique because <laughs> it's so ingrained in me. Even on shore, I still use the trailing hand technique. Now, a lot of the stairs, handrails aren't actually designed to, you know, they put all the supports underneath it on, the, on shore. But I try and use the trailing hand technique just because it's been so ingrained in me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do too. And and uh, people see me going down the stairs at, in a shopping mall or something and they look what's wrong with that guy why is he why is he holding his hand like that yeah i do that with stuff on the ground like no matter where i am i pick it up because it's just been ingrained in me that you don't want to have slip hazard yeah and so i just pick up stuff in the mall and the grocery stores <laughs> everywhere yeah that's 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 a great point neil once you develop once you turn those processes into habits then it's second nature you don't have to think about it anymore yeah. I mean, if you think about Mark, if you if you wear your seatbelt all the time, which I'm sure you do as a good HSE professional, if you get into a vehicle and it doesn't have a seatbelt, you just feel awkward as hell. Right. I mean, it's it, you're not you just can't sit there in the seat without the thing. Well, you we need to be to that point with all of our HSE tools where people feel uncomfortable if they don't have the tools that that we've given them. Hey, good segue. Uh, speaking of tools, since you've been in this industry for so long, that's another thing that you've seen fundamental changes is the technology that is used in this industry for HS&E. Yeah. Everything used to be in logbooks, right? And now you have systems that actually is, – um, is, is it better because of technology? Uh, I would say it is, yeah. But I guess one of the things, too, is it, that technology, you still have to use it. And, you know, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. Right. If the stuff that you push into the system – is is not is is garbage then no matter how you slice it and dice it and that you're going to end up with garbage so you got to make sure that what you put into the system is good to start with so, uh, we use a, a a data capture system that we capture every incident in the system and then we as long as we know that what the line management is putting in is valid good stuff then we can do that to do data mining and and uh, pull stuff out of the system to find out where the opportunities are to to work on problems. 
I want to connect those two. We talked about tools and risk assessments with new technologies. I want to get your your take and what Pacific's philosophy is on uh, risk assessment templates versus handwritten risk assessments for every job. How, do, how does Pacific view that? And are you worried about complacency with doing a risk assess, a full thorough risk assessment for every job? Yeah, it's uh, risk assessments for even a two or three hour job. They can end up being very long. And I guess one of the problems with a well-done risk assessment for a job. If you start from scratch at the start of that job to develop your risk assessment, even if your crew is well-versed at doing that risk assessment, it's going to take them a lot of time to do it, to get it on paper. And the old traditional JSA that's been out there for years, that's what it was. It was you had to sit down and write your job safety analysis at the start of the job and you'd cover everything on it. And you'd end up with a page full of scribbles. And There was good in that the crew was forced to think it through, but it was bad in that it took so long to do and maybe they missed things in doing it. So what we believe is we use a process called TRA, Task Risk Assessment. It's, it's almost like a, a JSA on steroids. It doesn't just list the the steps of doing the job and the the hazards and the activities and and that you'll actually rank the risk of the task before you implement your prevention measures uh, prevention and mitigation measures and then you rank it again Mm -hmm. if those measures are all put in place so the the crew will have those and we'll have 600, 700 task risk assessments for every potential job that the guys can do. And they're all filed. They're all signed off by management and they're all filed in the rig. So when the crew is getting ready to do their job, the supervisor will look at his 12-hour day and he'll figure out all the tasks that he has to do. And he'll pull up the task risk assessment, an electronic, a soft copy of it, and He'll review that with his crew, and they'll go through all of the prevention and mitigation measures from top to bottom to make sure that they're all in place the way the TRA says they're supposed to be in place. Everybody gets a chance to look at it, to read it, and then they all sign off on it. And if there's any changes to it, um, they say the supervisor thinks that one of the lines or a couple lines need to be changed, but it's a temporary change for that day say the weather is bad and they've got slippery floors that aren't typically slippery then they can implement some prevention measures on that TRA for that day that will they'll go away after that job because they aren't appropriate for the next one but if he sees any uh, measures that need to be put in place permanently on that TRA then it's up to him to communicate that back to the owner of the TRA and make a permanent change and there'll be a new revision of the TRA that's now Im- embedded in the system. And those owners, are those rig-based owners? or yeah. is that That's not They're in the all, office. That's no, on the it's all rig-based. Yeah, that actually sounds like a very well-thought-out system. Right? Nothing can slip between the cracks, but if you need some change, and we talk about continuous improvement, it's always built into it. Yeah, it is. Good stuff. Here's a good chance for us to pause. We're going to do our Red Wing uh, safety tip of the week. And, Neil, you're actually, you're actually a fan of Red Wing, aren't you? I, I know who Red Wing is. We <laughs> use Red Wing boots. It's one of our, uh, in fact, it's in our PPE standard. The boots that the guys wear on the rig are all 8-inch lace-up boots, and uh, Red Wing is the provider. Have yeah. you gotten away from the slip-ons completely? Oh, absolutely. We don't, we don't allow slip-ons. 
And for our audience, can you give us some uh, background as why you got away from the slip-on boots? You know, there's been a lot of studies on boots uh, over the last 10 years, and because ankle injuries continued to happen. You know, we, we graduated from ankle shoes to six-inch high shoes or boots to eight-inch boots to try and provide better support to the ankles. Well, your uh, gun boots and slip-on uh, boots were easy to get on, and they might be 8 inches, they might even be 10 inches tall, but there was no ankle support in them. They, they couldn't be tight around your ankles, or you wouldn't get them on and off. So you'd end up with guys stepping over pipes or hoses or things and rolling over on their ankle inside their boot. So uh, it, I, we won't take credit for the, the movement towards eight-inch lace-up boots. There's other companies that were ahead of us on that. But they found that if you put the guys into boots that have to be laced up tight so that you provide the ankle support, the, uh, the ankle injuries went down. So that's, that's why we've taken that position. Yeah, just for our audience, Red Wing provides both the lace-ups, the slip-ons. If you have some questions about what, what's the best route to go, Definitely reach out to Mark and myself. We can put you in contact with somebody at Red Wing to talk about exactly what Neil's saying. Whether you want to go lace up or, or slip on Red Wing, still going to be the boot for you. Yeah. We do. Uh, there is an option to an eight-inch lace-up Red Wing boot, though, and it's also made by Red Wing, and it's the ratchet style Absolutely. of I've lace. Absolutely, yeah. They're you know, one of the biggest complaints people will have about laces is uh, it takes time to sit down and run your laces around all the hooks and eyes and that. The, uh, the ratchet style of lace-up boot gives you the same benefit in that you, put your, you slip your foot into the boot and then when you turn the ratchet, it tightens the laces for you and it's easy to do. So our program allows for either a, the traditional lace-up or the ratchet style lace-up. This was almost the Red Wing tip of the week, <laughs> the whole discussion about ankles and, and yeah. boots. So but did you have something you wanted to talk about for the a, a Red Wing safety tip of the week? You know, I, I may have already talked about it, really. My big thing is the 24-7 habit that needs to be created. I just, I believe in that really strongly. Um, when, when, it's, when there's rules written on paper, you can't just apply that when you're at work. It's the, the old message that when you come to work and you put your safety hat and your PPE on and at the end of the day you take it off, that's old school. We don't do that anymore. You're... When you, when you take your PPE equipment off, the, the rules and that that you've used in the job, they stay with you when you go on your off time. Yeah, great, 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 great idea, great implementation, great tip of the week. Um, what else we talk about, Patrick? Uh, you want to tell us who uh, won the bag this week? And our winner is Ricky Banks with Rowan Companies, HSE Specialists. Congratulations, Ricky. You won this awesome Red Wing Offshore bag. So congratulations. Uh, if you'd like your own Red Wing bag, it's very easy to do. These things are in high demand. Um, you simply go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Um, enter your information and you may be the lucky person to win this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. So Neil, um, speaking of offshore bags, um, any tips for our, our, anybody in the audience that's maybe getting ready to go offshore for the first time in their life, you know, as far as packing, um, that's one of the things that we, I've gotten questions around before. And, you know, the guys that have been doing it for years know exactly what to bring, and the guys that don't are get a little bit worried about that. Yeah, I guess I could use the same uh, analogy to when I went on a, a hiking trip one time. The, 
the guy who was uh, going to be leading the, this was a multi-day hike, he said, okay, you need to pack everything in your bag, everything you think you're going to need, and then you take it and you open it up and you dump it out and you get rid of half of it <laughs> and you put the rest, you take out, you got to take half out and keep the stuff you really need. You know, it's kind of the same when the guy's going offshore for the first time and he thinks he needs everything, including the kitchen sink. Well, they have lots of sinks out there. You know, they don't, <laughs> you don't need a bunch of stuff on the rig and you don't need things that are going to uh, take your mind off of what you're doing. I don't even take shampoo, conditioner, and soap anymore. No. I pick it up in the hotel on my uh, on my way out there, just get the little travel ones, and yeah. you're good to go. And, and clothes, you know, the guys all wear uniforms on the rig, and uh, you don't need to go out there with enough clothes to do you for a week or two, uh, a day or two, is it? Because they're going to wash them for you. And so you'll see your experienced travelers that go to the rig, they're packing a little, little duffel bag, if that. A lot of times... Uh, they can fit what they need into their pockets. That's yeah. Advice, you don't need to go out packing a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, we uh, actually, for our Young Professionals group, we did an um, offshore rig tour. Um, it was a few months ago, Patrick, right? Yeah, about two months ago. Yeah, and I was amazed how small the drilling floor is now. I haven't been offshore in 15 years, and it's like, oh, my God, because of technology. Everything's, um, you know, there's no, people aren't using chain and tongs to grab pipe. All that stuff's automated. And I was looking at this going, so not only is the drilling floor smaller, but it has to be so much more safer because people aren't handling pipe anymore. It's all done by, by equipment. And on the, the rig, it was also surprising. They had a gym. And it's like, when I went offshore, there was no gym. Your workout was your job. right? So it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see some those amenities actually making it out, out to the rigs. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, I think that another thing that's changed besides the quality of the gyms and the workout is the food. Uh, the companies nowadays... They, Fried f fried stuff is gone. I mean, well, you can Except still Friday. find yeah, Friday. <laughs> you can still get some fried foods, but it's amazing when you go to a, a good rig nowadays. How you know you'll have a salad bar and a fruit bar, and the the food that's prepared is baked and broiled and not deep fried. So the the guys are eating better, and the hazards of the job are less because as you say there's there's no chains and a lot of the th hazards have been engineered out of the system so the job is safer the the working conditions are better the food is better the sleeping conditions i mean even in the last couple of years the the IMO rules have changed where you don't have somebody sleeping in your room with you you are by the new rules, you have to be in a room by yourself for your off period. So that means you don't even have, you don't have some guy snoring in your ear, uh, so you get much better quality sleep. It's just, it's an amazing turnaround from where it was 20, 30 years ago. That is awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And Pacific's got all new rigs, so they don't have to be painted. If you've ever tried sleeping on a rig when someone's needle gunning on the house, <laughs> yeah. that, that resonates through the entire building, but... Pacific doesn't have to worry about that yet. Nope. It's brand new rigs. No, nope, that's true. You know, it's when I came into the industry, it was just uh, months before my condo happened. And people said, oh, boy, did you make a mistake? You, you jumped into the fire. And, you know, for the first few weeks that uh, the condo incident was going on, uh, uh, a lot of us felt that way because the market was going to, you know, they were, all the rigs were frozen and, right. and the drilling activity. But... Then came the realization that, no, this is a great time to get in because 
your your operators they're not going to accept subpar equipment or practices after something like this event they're going to want the best well one of the first things to start with is the best equipment so if you're a new company with brand new high technology that's the latest technology equipment that's where you want to be because that's what your customer wants and then if you can put that together with the right the right people and the right training and the right support you got it made yeah that's that's you know what you're right i didn't even think about that way but post macondo everybody had the sims um, law was passed which directly came from api recommended practice 75 and it's um you're right all of a sudden the operators wanted a plus yeah a even a minus wasn't acceptable anymore yeah yeah and, and rightly so right we it's um it was the right way to go with that neil one thing i wanted to ask you so um all your rigs have dual derricks, correct? Yeah. Are you seeing any increased safety risks with running those derricks at the same time now that? We don't actually drill with them. We'll do, you use the second derrick for making up equipment. Right, well, with the added personnel of, of running two, you know, you got your, your inline operations and your offline operations. With the extra personnel on the rig floor doing both jobs, I've heard some operators, they're concerned about the added personnel on the floor while two operations going on at the same time. Has Pacific seen any increased risk associated with running online and op offline operations with two derricks? No, I'd say that it, it all comes back to planning. And, uh, you know, there's a separate cabin for the drilling controls that for operating the main and the aux well. And as long as you've got your assistant drillers and drillers focused on what they're doing and... Um, and, and at the same time, being aware that simultaneous operations c can happen, but you need to work them through. If you've got something going on on the main well where you've got a crew that's going to be on the floor, and you've got something on the auxiliary well where you've got equipment moving, that's, that's not allowed until those crews have had a meeting where they talk about the simultaneous operation to make sure that the guys on one side don't get involved in the in what's going on on the other side. Right. Good communication, good planning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, the one of the big things, um, incidents still happen. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but they do. They still happen. But there's two measures to make sure that somebody doesn't get hurt. The first one is the one that we all strive for, and that's prevention of the incident in the first place. The second one is the mitigation to the people. If an incident occurs, how do you mitigate the severity of what happened? And uh, so when you're working on the, on the floor and you've got operations going in both the main and auxiliary derrick side, uh, people can't be on the floor when there's stuff moving upstairs because if something comes out of the sky, you never know what it's going to hit on its way down and whether it's going to ricochet over to the other side. So it means that the floor is closed off. You, you, you risk, um, you mitigate that potential for somebody to get hurt, and the red zone is off limits when anything's moving up over, overhead. So that pretty well takes care of your concern, Patrick. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. So Neil, we wind the show up. It's um, thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's great to have somebody with your experience on on our podcast. If somebody wanted to learn more about Pacific drilling, where should they go? They can go to our website 
www.pacificdrilling.com. Yep. And if they wanted to learn more about you, they can find you on LinkedIn, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, this is the spot where we want to talk about our LinkedIn group a little bit, uh, Patrick. So what's so cool about our LinkedIn group? The zero spam, I think, is the best aspect of the LinkedIn group. It's all for oil and gas professionals. It's the Oil and Gas Global Network, Network or OGGN. Um, go there for questions, tips, um, advice, whatever you need. Um, it also has great content coming out of this show, Oil and Gas This Week. Um, you'll hear it there first. Uh, sign up for the, the group and be the first one to know about all the upcoming events we've got. Yeah, and if you listen to the show, please, please, please leave us a review. It takes all of two seconds on iTunes. Um, it helps us climb in the search engine ranking so that more people like you can find the show. Besides leaving a review, if you've listened to the show and you've liked it, can you do me a favor and please share this with your friends and your colleagues or people in your book club? We're trying to grow our audience, so the more people that we can get out in front of, the better for all of us. I think we've got somebody with us that can actually send an email to his entire office and, and, not, <laughs> and not worry about it. So, so, Neil, if you share this with everybody in your company, I, I, don't, I don't feel so bad about asking you to do that, but if you're one of our listeners, don't send the all-in-Houston or all-company email. <laughs> So it's about does it. Patrick, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right. So folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston, to London, to Dubai, and beyond. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen offshore? He can't answer that. He's only worked for Pacific Offshore. What's, <laughs> he, what's he as craziest? I haven't seen anything crazy. <laughs> um...